All right, guys. Uh, you may be seated, and we'll dismiss our kids with Justin and Diana to their breakout group. Uh, as you're being seated, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. And we're going to be looking at a number of passages of Scripture this morning, as always. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to grab one off our resource table back here um, or pull it up on your phone. So as all of you know, for the last few months, we've been in this study, The Hidden Prophets. We've been walking through 12 small uh, forgotten books in the Old Testament, forgotten at least here in America, uh, that are known as the Minor Prophets. Thus far, we've looked at four of them who are known as the Pre-Exilic Prophets. Next week, we will start our next book, Zephaniah, and we will get into what are sometimes thought of as the Exilic Prophets who are writing during the period of exile that Judah faces. Um, but what we're doing today is we're wrapping up a two-week, two-part, little kind of mini-series in the midst of this, uh, where we're uh, looking at how do we see Christ in the Old Testament? And that's a really important question, um, because some of us have a, a kind of a bifurcated view of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We kind of view the Bible as having these, these two parts there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament. We kind of think of this as the old section and this as the new section. And, and if we're not careful, we can see them as being two kind of distinct things. Like the Old Testament is, well, I guess it's the story of Israel and it's the story of God's relationship to Israel. And there's a lot of strange stuff in the Old Testament. And God sometimes seems angry. And, and then we get to the New Testament. And the New Testament's really just all about Jesus. And God seems to be this loving God who has given his only son. And everything is about that. And so sometimes we can kind of separate it in this way. And, and the problem with that is that what can happen is, is we can come to see the Old Testament as like being the story of like a failed experiment. That, that God is a God who in the beginning created all things to be perfect and then was like shocked when the man and the woman fell into sin and, and everything just kind of devolved from there. And so it's like the Old Testament then is the story of God trying to figure out how to reconcile that. And he's sending guys like Moses and he's sending prophets and he's trying to call people back to himself, but the people just don't want to do it. And God eventually kind of throws up his hands and says, well, I guess in order to somehow fix this, I'm going to have to send Jesus. And so it can seem like this is a failed experiment that God finally gets right in the New Testament. And so we have to be real careful with that because that's not the story at all. If we actually read the scriptures, that's not what's going on. And so part of this is about helping us to understand what can be called the meta-narrative of the Bible or the overarching storyline of scripture. And it's really incredible that we can even say that there is a meta-narrative when, when you consider what the Bible is. Like, this is, this is not one book. This is 66 distinct books that have all been combined together into sort of this mini-library, this omnibus, if you will. And, and, and yet, even though this was written over a period of like 1,400 to 1,600 years, and even though there are at least 40 different human authors writing in this book, somehow, and I would say it's miraculous, somehow this actually dovetails together in incredible ways and there's absolutely no way logically it could have been planned, right? You're talking about human authors 
who in many cases were not contemporaries or peers or even knew of the other's existence or had access to the writings of other people. And so there's just this incredible sense of unity when you actually start reading the scriptures and when you start to see the, the overarching storyline or the meta narrative for what it is, it's even more incredible. And so that's what we're into right now. And, and this storyline concerns Christ. It concerns Jesus. And let's begin today in Isaiah 53. Last week we talked about what Jesus had to say about himself And in particular, we looked at times when Jesus invoked the words of the Old Testament and said, this is me. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the Old Testament. We're going to springboard off of some of Jesus's words. And we're going to look at places where we see Christ in the Old Testament, even though there's not an explicit place where like Jesus pops up and says hi. Even though that's not the case, we still see Christ all over the pages of the Old Testament. So let's begin here. I think you'll see what I mean. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read this entire text this morning. Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. That sound like anybody you all know? You know, what's amazing is that was written about a thousand years before the time of Christ um, by the prophet Isaiah. And throughout the Old Testament, there are, by some counts, at least 300 
messianic prophecies like that, prophecies that relate directly to a future redeemer, a future Messiah, a future anointed one. That's what that word Messiah means, is anointed one. And some of those prophecies are obvious and explicit, like here, like it's, it seems very clear if you've read the story of Christ and then you read something like that, like you can easily draw lines between some of the things that you're reading. And, and some are a little bit more obtuse at first until you really start reading them through the lens of what Paul last week called the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. What did Paul last week say the gospel was? Like the basic gospel message that he had delivered to the church in Corinth. He said his basic gospel was that uh, Jesus was born and that he died and that he was buried and that he rose from the dead. Like Paul said that those were like the essential components of the gospel message I shared this week with some of our guys at our Tuesday morning prayer time this quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller has a fantastic book called The Reason for God, and we've got a few copies back here on the table. But if you're somebody who is skeptical about faith, skeptical about the story of Scripture, or just curious and and wanting to dig deeper, it's a really fantastic book, and so I'd encourage you to to grab one of those. But here's something he says in that book. Uh, and it's always stuck with me. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, right? Like if this, if this supernatural thing happened, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of it? And that includes even just like the good like moral things that he said that, that are not inherently religious or spiritual, just, you know, loving other people. Most of us can get on board with that. But if, but if this guy didn't actually rise from the dead, then, then why even bother with that stuff? He goes on to say, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Right? Because there have been all kinds of people throughout history who have supposedly rose and risen from the dead. But one of the things we have to decide in faith is whether or not this is true of Christ. Right? Like, you can accept some of his moral teachings. That was kind of what Thomas Jefferson did. If, if you're not familiar, there's, there's something called the Jefferson Bible. You can go see it. Uh, I think it's in the Smithsonian. But uh, Jefferson was a, a deist, uh, which it was something that was very prevalent at the, at the time when America was founded. It's less prevalent today. Um, deists were people who, uh, in general, believed that there was a God. They believed that there was somebody, at some being at some point in time who had kind of set things into motion, but that that God was sort of removed from everything now, that he wasn't present, he wasn't personal in any way, he wasn't involved in day-to-day life. Um, and, and so Jefferson looked at Jesus as just a good moral teacher. And so he took a normal Bible And he went to the Gospels, and he basically took a razor blade and just like cut out all of the moral teachings of Jesus, all the the things that he said that related to love and grace and mercy and those kinds of things. But anything that was even remotely supernatural, uh, Jefferson didn't cut out. And he took all of those things and he pasted them in another book. And it's today known as the Jefferson Bible. 
And, and, and that's the way some of us approach the Bible in general, isn't it? Like, like what we want to do is we want to take this thing and go, uh, I like this part, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe this, but then this part over here I'm not so sure about because it's a little more mystical or supernatural in nature, so, so let's jettison that. And, 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 and here's some stuff I like, so we're going to hold on to this. But, but all of this, all of this Christian faith stuff is premised on the foundation that a man rose from the dead. Like it is based on the foundation that something incredibly supernatural happened that that I don't don't fully understand. And, And so if in faith we believe that to be true, if we believe that is something that actually happened, then we have to look at the teaching of Jesus certainly with that kind of lens, right? We have to look as it look at it, not asking the question, do I like this or do I not like it, but but asking, how do I put this into practice in my life? So we're stepping into this space today, trusting that Jesus is truthful, right? That that he is what he claims to be. And throughout the Old Testament, we see repeated glimpses of what is to come through the Messiah. And not all of those are direct prophecies, like the one we just read a minute ago. Um, Last week, we considered what Jesus had to say about himself, and we looked at a few examples, and there were times when he directly quoted the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah 61 at one point that we read, you know, I I have come to proclaim freedom to the captives and good news to the poor and all of those things, and Jesus said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing meaning these words that Isaiah wrote a thousand years ago are now fulfilled today in me and in my incarnation. But not everything is a direct prophecy. And the text we looked at last week last was Luke 24. And Jesus concluded that passage um, by appearing to his disciples. There, There was the whole road to Emmaus experience where he appears to some guys on this road and it said he unpacked to them the ways that what we think of as the Old Testament testified to him. But then he appears with his disciples, and what he says is, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. So all of the things you've heard me teaching, the parables, all of this stuff, this is what I was telling you about, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, it says, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are the witnesses of these things. So just imagine that moment. Like this guy that you, you think is probably dead, suddenly appears in a room with you and does something to you that suddenly allows you to understand the Hebrew Bible, what we think of as the Old Testament, the scriptures to them, in a way that you never have before. And Jesus basically says, the whole of the Old Testament testifies to who I am. So Jesus and his disciples and people in his day and age 
would have had access to what we think of as the Old Testament. But, but their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, was organized a little bit differently than our, the New Testament you have in your Bible today. Um, and, and just to break this down for you real quick, the, the first section of the Hebrew Bible was called the Torah, or the Law. Uh, you'll also hear this called by its Greek name, which is the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, uh, penta means five, tuk means book, the book of five. Uh, these are the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, they tell the story of creation, tells the story of God calling Abraham, uh, tells the story of God kind of forming Israel and saying, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And the great bulk of it is about Moses and the story of God handing down his law to the people of Israel. So those are the first five books. Those books really form the foundation of Judaism, the Jewish faith. Um, the next grouping is what's called the Nevaim. The Nevaim, or the prophets. And there are books in the Nevi'im that you would totally expect. There's Isaiah, there's Ezekiel, uh, the Book of the Twelve, which are the twelve minor prophets, are found in the Nevi'im. Um, but then there are some other books that you might not think of as books of prophecy. We would actually think of them as like books of history. And those are books like Joshua, uh, Judges, First uh, and Second Kings. Those are found in the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, in their organization of things. And, and then finally, the last section is called the Ketuvim, or the writings. And it's a little bit more of a grab bag. It's kind of everything else uh, that's in your Old Testament that hasn't been included in the law or the prophets. And the writings would include the poetical books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, it would include uh, books like Ruth, uh, Esther, um, also First and Second Chronicles is in there as well. Um, and also the book of Daniel, which you would probably think of as a, a prophetic book, is actually found in the Ketuvim. It's found in the writings. And, and so what's interesting about this is that all of these things come together to form the Hebrew Bible. And what the Hebrew Bible is called is the Tanakh, the Tanakh. And, and that's actually kind of like an acrostic for Torah, Nevaim, Ketuvim, the Tanakh. And so this is what Jesus and his disciples would have had access to. The same books that are in your Old Testament, just organized into the law, the prophets, and the writings. And, and so when Jesus says that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled, he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. Do you, do you see that? He's, he is directly referencing the three sections of their Hebrew Bible, the things that they would have recognized as making up the whole of the Scriptures. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take those words of Jesus, and we're going to begin by looking at the Torah, and then we're going to look at the writings, and then we're going to finally look at the passage from Isaiah that we read to begin all of this. And in doing this, we're also going to see three different ways that we see Christ in the Old Testament. And the first way that we're going to look at is we see Jesus in archetypes. 
The second way is we see him in poetry. And the third way is that we see him in prophecy. And guys, I mean, we could spend months on this kind of stuff because there is so much. Today what we're going to do is, is like a 30,000-foot flyover, and we're really looking at like the greatest hits here today, the most obvious things and the things that are perhaps most talked about. And so uh, to begin with, uh, turn with me to the book of Genesis. Gosh, there is so much in the book of Genesis that we could look at. In the very beginning, um, Genesis chapter 1 Uh, God made the heavens and the earth, right? And he goes through all the days of creation, and we get down to um, verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let us make man in our image. So suddenly, we're using the plural there, let us make man in our image. We go all the way to the New Testament, to the book of John, the Gospel of John, which is telling the story of Jesus, it doesn't begin with the genealogy of Jesus. It doesn't begin with the manger scene. Um, John begins by saying, in the beginning, just like the book of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so Apostle John, as he's writing his gospel, he's taking us all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures, to the Torah, and he is showing us, even in the New Testament, that when God said, let us make man in our image, that the word, who he reveals to be Jesus, the word is also present. The spirit, by the way, is also seen as hovering over the waters, the spirit of God. Uh, Man, there's all kinds of stuff just here at the very beginning. The man and the woman sin in the garden. And there's this curse that happens in chapter 3. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So we're talking about offspring, what is to come. He, he shall bruise your head. Who is this he? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is one of those places where a lot of people speculate that per- perhaps we're talking about Christ here. Who, who will ultimately come and bruise the head of the enemy, the serpent? Who, who's the one that's ultimately going to be the victor here? Um, so one of the things that's tough about this is even though Jesus, in several places, as we saw last week, quotes from the Old Testament and says, this is talking about me. It's explicit, like it's clear. The greater sense that we get is that there are many, 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 many other places that he doesn't directly quote or directly allude to. Like Road to Emmaus, he unpacks it all for these guys, but we don't know exactly what he unpacks. For the disciples, he opens their minds to understand it, and he says it's in the law, it's in the prophets, it's in the writings. And so what it causes people to do today is to kind of go through the whole Old Testament with a fine-tooth comb and go, maybe this is him, maybe this is him. And there's, so there's a lot of like speculative stuff in here where we can say, yeah, this could be alluding to Christ. This could possibly be what we're talking about here. But then there are other areas where it is far more obvious. Um, and one of those areas is in the area of archetypes. And in particular in the book of Genesis, the one that we can most obviously look to is interestingly not Abraham, and it's not Moses. Who is it? It's Joseph. It's Joseph. Jesse got it. 
Joseph, go to Genesis 38. How many of y'all remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is seemingly like a, a minor character within the scheme of Scripture. Like, he, he's not one of the three patriarchs of Israel. He's not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He's a son of Jacob. He's like the youngest son of Jacob. And, and yet, his story takes up almost twice the space of the story of Abraham. Like, the guy, the guy God made his covenant with and said, I'm going to bless your descendants. And I'm going to, you know, like the whole the whole thing, like Joseph's story is a huge part of this book. And starting in actually chapter 37, we get into the story of Joseph. And, and, and if you don't know this story, well, let me just kind of briefly walk through it. I'm not going to read all this, but, but it begins with a son, Joseph, who is beloved by his father. He's beloved by his father, and the sign of his father's love is he gives him what? A coat of many colors, right? He gives him this robe, and his brothers, he has, he has all these brothers, and they cannot stand him. Like, I, th- I think we read it, and he maybe comes across to us as arrogant. I don't really think he is, but his brothers just hate the fact that his father dotes on him, that his father, like, and the scripture says, like, it's his father's favorite kid. And so what do his brothers do? Like, in jealousy, out of anger, they sell him into slavery. And he sold for what? For pieces of silver into slavery. And he's carried away to Egypt. Like, to a land, he was, comes from the land of Canaan, he's carried away to Egypt. And he, at first, is just living this life of servitude. He comes into the house of a guy named Potiphar as a servant. Potiphar's wife is sort of this um, unfulfilled woman who tries to seduce him. And so early on, he experiences this great temptation to like give in to her seduction. And yet the story tells us that he resists temptation and, and runs away and is falsely accused as a result of what has happened. Like she accuses him of trying to take advantage of her. And so he gets thrown into jail, right? He gets arrested by Gentiles and thrown into jail. And in jail, he starts to interpret dreams that other inmates are having. And this comes to the attention of Pharaoh, who's been having a dream. And so he's brought before Pharaoh. He displays this like supernatural power, this kind of miraculous ability to correctly interpret these bizarre dreams that Pharaoh's having. And so because of this, he is he ascends like overnight to being one of the top officials in the kingdom and is given all of this power all of this ability, and what Genesis tells us is he is 30 years old at the time that this happens, like literally the age that we believe Jesus to be when he begins his earthly ministry. And so, so he ascends to this position of power. Um, he is wielding his authority with goodness and with mercy, and who comes before him? His own brothers, who believe him to be dead, Right? We missed that part of the story. What did they tell their father when they sold him into slavery? Like they took his coat of many colors back to their dad covered in blood and said, your son's dead. So the son who is believed to be dead is actually alive. Right? And because of a famine in the land of Canaan, Jacob sends his other sons to Egypt to try to buy grain. And they come before 
their brother, who they don't know is their brother. And they ask for mercy, <laughs> right? And he gives it to them, ultimately. And he reveals them, himself to them, and he forgives them for their sins, for having wronged him, for having sold him into slavery, for having given him over in their minds to death. And so he saves his entire family by bringing them to this new kingdom, right? And by blessing them and giving them land and giving them food and provision. Like that's, that's just kind of a flyover of the story of Joseph. And so like even just in that, you can see archetypally some of these connections to Christ. Um, Pastor Eric Raymond writes uh, that there are at least 18 different connections. He's the object of his father's special love. He had promises of divine exaltation. He was mocked by his family. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was stripped of his robe. He was delivered up to the Gentiles. He was falsely accused. He was faithful amid temptation. He was thrown into prison. He stood before rulers. His power was acknowledged by those in authority. He saves his rebellious brothers from death when they realize who he is. He's exalted after and through humiliation. He embraces God's purpose even though it brings him intense physical harm. He is the instrument of God. Um, he is the instrument of God used at the hands of the Gentiles to bless his people. He welcomes Gentiles to be a part of his family. He gives hungry people bread. People must bow their knee before him. Like, so there are just all of these connections, and we see this in the story of a guy like Joseph. We see it also in the story of a guy like Joshua. We see it in the story of somebody like David. There are just all of these connections that we can make between the story of Christ and them as well. So we see him in the law. We see him um, as an archetype um, and in many other ways as well. Now turn with me over to Psalm 22. Uh, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says a number of things. He's mostly silent for the time when he's being um, kind of arraigned, when he's before Herod and before Pilate and all these things. Jesus doesn't really say much, and he doesn't really say much on the cross either. Um, you know, he's got the two thieves on the sides of him. He tells one of them, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, he says, I thirst at one point. At the very end, he says, it is finished. Um, but he also says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in doing that, he is quoting directly from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And it goes on, skip down to verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide their garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Wow. So when Jesus says, everything in the law and everything in the, 
Psalms, the writings must be fulfilled. I mean, like here, like we're seeing things that are intentionally pointed out in the gospel accounts as not just being a thing that happened along the way, but also uh, for, for any like Hebrew person as something that's going to make you go, that's like Psalm 22, right? When he's crying out to God on the cross, the Romans don't know what he's talking about, but any good Jew would have known exactly what he was saying. Right? These were words that they had heard before. And in this, this whole thing of I'm s- surrounded by evildoers, right? and they're, they're casting lots for my clothing, and I'm pierced. So we see these things just coming up over and over again, these images of suffering, these images that you know, are so myriad and diverse, like just the basic notion that they could ever all kind of come together and be fulfilled in one person just defies logic and reason, right? So the law, the writings, and then let's look again at Isaiah, Isaiah 55, or Isaiah 53, rather. Uh, this is one of several passages in Isaiah that are known as suffering servant passages, And um, they begin in in the upper 40s chapters and continue. This this passage, this section actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13. But we're starting in 53, and I'm not going to read through all of this again, but I want to just skip down to verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced, there, there's that word again, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace. So, so even here, like you're seeing this description of the atonement, the way that the punishment that should be due to us is being placed on Christ like for our iniquities, upon him, the chastisement, that word means punishment, that, that brought us peace. So somehow by this suffering servant being afflicted, somehow by him being pierced, we're receiving peace. And yet, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here's this notion that we don't deserve for this punishment or this piercing or this chastisement to be laid on this person, this is something that God has elected to do. This is something that he has chosen, and, and this is his will. The Lord Yahweh, it says, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. I mean, that's, that's startling, right? Right, that something that was written a thousand years before the time of Christ and, and, and something like the story of David and the Psalms and, and even what we see in the story of somebody like Joseph, that, that all of these things could come together from such a, an enormous swath of time 
and could actually describe what is happening in and through the person of Christ, could actually describe the gospel for us, could describe the atonement for us. I mean, it, it really is fascinating to me. And, and I, I'm just like, how, even if you're just a totally secular person, even if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, I mean, how can you ignore some of those things? Like, do you just chalk that up to just complete coincidence? Because, I, I mean, there's nothing else like that out there that I know of, at least, where, where that, there's that level of coincidence. To me, it really is staggering. Turn with me over to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Jesus, if you remember we mentioned earlier, had quoted Isaiah as well. He quoted Isaiah 61 in the synagogue, and he said, this is me, but later... The book of Acts, chapter 8, this is after the ascension, this is after the Holy Spirit falls. The disciple Peter is being directed around by, um, by God to different places. And verse 26 of chapter 8, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, which means this guy had serious financial means just to have access to a scroll, like to have it in his personal possession and just be reading it in his chariot. That just wasn't something that was happening for most people in this day and age. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep. He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So this guy's literally reading Isaiah 53 in his chariot. And Philip walks up to him and says, Do you understand what you're reading? And he says, No. And look what he says next, verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Right? That's the big question here, is like, who's Isaiah talking about? Because in some sense, this could describe Isaiah. Like, Isaiah was not somebody who was like celebrated for his prophecy by any stretch of the imagination. So is this him or is this someone else? And what does Philip do here? Right? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him right then and there. Based on, I mean, he didn't have this, right? He has one scroll, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. What in the world does this mean? Who is he talking about? Is this him? Is this somebody else? And Philip seizes that opportunity and says, let me tell you exactly what he's talking about here. And there's a very real sense in which Isaiah is talking about himself, and he's talking about Christ. 
In the same way in chapter 61, he was talking about himself and he was talking about Christ. In the same way that the Passover is about how God saved Israel from Egypt, and yet it's also about Christ, right? In the same way that the story of Joseph is the story of Joseph, and yet it's the story of Christ. Like, this is, this is the depth of intricacy within the Scripture. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And, and this meta-narrative is ultimately leading us to Christ. And so that's why we read through the minor prophets, and they seem schizophrenic. It's, it, because on one hand, they go, doom and gloom and destruction and weeping and sorrow, and all of these terrible things are happening because of your sin, but then God's going to save everybody. That's how it reads. Like, then God's going to redeem everything. Then everything's going to be okay. How in the world is that possible? How in the world can both things be true? It's true in Christ. Right? Yeah, yeah like, there is destruction that's coming. There are bad things. There we, live, we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. But in the midst of this world, there is good news. And it is the news of the gospel. Like, it is the news that... Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. And that that's not just a story, that that is actually true. And if God is God, like if, if any of this is real, then why would we be surprised that it's supernatural? Like if God's the one who spoke creation into existence, like, like that. Like, why would we be surprised when there are elements of this that we don't fully understand or elements that seem strange to us or mystical to us? God is, by his very nature, supernatural. Why is it so hard to believe that, that he could somehow take all of these different human authors and weave something together like the Scripture? And then when we actually start to engage it and we see these things and the ways that Things that were written a thousand years apart fit together. I hope it strengthens your faith. Like, I hope it draws you deeper, one, into a desire to engage this even more fully, to, to really dig into the Bible, because there's so much of this for so many of us that we just haven't touched. Like, we haven't, we haven't dealt with it. Like, we haven't read it. We haven't studied it. There are parts of it that we've read and we've said, mm, I don't understand that, so I don't, I don't know if I can believe any of this. We have to be careful there. Like, we have to engage it honestly and say, Lord, help me to understand this. Like, even Jesus' disciples needed him to open their minds to understand it. And most of us are pretty intelligent people, Right? And yet we still need the Lord's help, I think, to truly engage this in the way that he's called us to. So as we jump into the book of Zephaniah next week, as we continue to journey through the minor prophets, we're going to continue to see this trend, right? We're going to continue to see that everything is pointing to some kind of future redemption, future reconciliation, future Messiah, Redeemer, who is to come, who's going to save Israel. And that is Jesus Christ. And then when he arrives, he's not at all what people expect, is he? He's not this new David, this new like human king. We read the story of the triumphal entry with our kids a few weeks ago. And it's, it's, it's like the triumphal entry, it's like, this is not how a king enters town. Like a normal human king, right? 
peasants aren't, aren't like laying their clothes down on the ground, and he's not, he's not riding on a donkey, right? There is great fanfare and royal splendor, and right? This is a guy riding in on a white horse with a scepter and a crown, and, and that's not who Jesus is, is it? How do we learn who he is? How do we learn how to emulate him? We learn it through engaging his word. And if you believe that a man came back from the dead, the place that you've gained that information from is also this book. You just haven't heard it from other people. Where did they hear it? It all comes back here. So I want to encourage you this week, as Justin did earlier, in engaging the word of God The goal is not necessarily that we would understand every single thing we read. The goal is that we look at this and ask questions about who God is and who Christ is so that we might emulate him in our lives. Like if we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, we have to look to the one who is the archetype for neighbor loving, right? The one who gave himself up to death willingly, who was crushed and pierced and afflicted for our transgressions so that we might be reconciled to God. And so let us go to him this morning in prayer. Give him thanks and praise. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for the ways that we see Christ in the Old Testament. And Lord, uh, you know we only, we didn't even scratch the surface today of that. Like there is so much more that we could delve into. And yet, God, we thank you. Help us, um, help us with our unbelief. As we say often, we're all unbelievers in some way, some shape, some form. Father, something in our life that we struggle with, that we haven't fully submitted to you, God. Reveal to us what that is. And give us a hunger and a thirst for um, pursuing you and your word. And as we do that, Father, I pray you would open our minds and our hearts to understand in a deeper way. But not so that we might just be more knowledgeable, not so that we would be puffed up, but, Father, so that we might come to embody and emulate Jesus more and more in our lives. Help us with this, Father. Let me ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.